1: up on today's show, we clearly have a situation on our hands in this province. The healthcare system is at that point that we always say we don't want to get to, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. They've cancelled on-campus voting for this federal election. What does it mean to getting young people involved in politics? And what happened to all the talk about monetary policy? I like doing this, getting a, a report from someone who knows someone who's inside the system, someone who's going through this every day, somebody who's working in our healthcare system, as we continue to pile it on every single day. It goes more and more. So right now, we're going to chat with Dr. Sean Van Diepen, who is an Edmonton critical care specialist. Uh, Doc, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Give me an update. Uh, Where are we? What's going on in hospitals right now? How bad has it got? The system is really, really stressed. Um, Our regular units are full of
2: patients with COVID-19, and we've had to open additional units and that's come at a cost. So what I mean by that is um uh, non-traditional critical care spaces or other specialty critical care spaces have been taken over and made into uh, ad hoc COVID critical care units in order to care for these people, and that's really come at a cost. Um, you can't just open units or add nurses and doctors without cancelling something else. Yeah. Um, we've had a major, major reduction in diagnostic, therapeutic and even life-saving um, uh, surgeries in order to care for these uh, people. Obviously, these nurses have to come from somewhere, and so nurses with any past uh, critical care training, are being redeployed uh, to care for these patients in uh, in uh, in the ICUs, and you know what this this wave is much much different um, than the other waves. Obviously, there's the frustration that um, this is. Primarily unvaccinated, I would say 100% of the patients I've taken care of um, in the last uh, two months have been unvaccinated, and I know the AHS publishes their stats
1: yep. uh, that it's a little less than that. But my personal experience, it's all unvaccinated. Yeah, it's well over 90% in the yep. ICU that are unvaccinated. I mean, yeah, I mean the evidence is there, Doc. Um, just to get a little more in detail, like we know that they've expanded ICU. Typically, we run about 175, and they now pushed it up over over 200 and something. Um, but like you say, it's not just opening up a new bed, right? It, it, it's the staffing. How, how, much, how much more expansion is possible? That's a great question, it's not necessarily
2: the limits in beds, there are other, we can add a number of other units. My biggest concern is the number of people and the number of people are far lower than the previous waves because of nursing uh, burnout In the units I've worked in, we've lost 10 and up to 20% of our experienced, competent, long-term critical care nurses for a lot of reasons. Some have taken mental health leave, burnout, Uh, they've left the profession altogether. They've gone out of scope because they're just tired. Um, And so when you're trying to respond to a fourth wave, that can be much bigger than the first three, and then you reduce the pool of nurses by 10 or 20 percent. This, you know, I can't give you an exact number, but it's going to be far more difficult this time.
1: Are we getting close, though? I mean, is it at a point where, okay, expansion doesn't happen, and now we're back into that situation where we're looking at field hospitals and worse? I don't think, uh, just speaking of the University of Alberta, we have other expansion plans available, but okay. I think it
2: is very likely that if we continue at this rate, um, unchecked, that we'll be able to care for them, but we won't have the same level of expertise of care at the bedside. Uh, and that's, that's, a real, uh, that's a real possibility. I can't tell you if that's going to be in a, a week or three weeks, but um, if the projections uh, and the growth remain um, unchecked,
1: uh, that is a possibility. Can you give me a a definition here? All urgent and emergent procedures, as well as prioritized cancer surgeries, are continuing. What What's the cutoff? What's an urgent or emergent procedure, and what is considered to be an elective? Like, what kind of people can be reassured that, hey, you know what, you're going to get the care that you need, but you know maybe you're not. Like, what's that defining line? Well, it
2: depends on the, uh, the underlying condition and how long they can wait. So I'll speak. I work in uh, the cardiovascular surgical unit. So um, right now, all the urgent ones are being independently adjudicated by a, a team of physicians and surgeons looking at them, how how long do they think they can wait based on their symptoms, based on the testing they've had done. Um, the people with cardiovascular disease that are in hospital are, are urgent, uh, waiting for the surgery. They're going to be done, but they just may not be done um, uh, as quickly as possible. Now, with that being said, there's still possibilities for things to go wrong. I've personally taken care of patients that were thought to be well, that have deteriorated to the point that they were no longer a surgical candidate. And I've also taken care of people that were previously well as as an outpatient, uh, but, they had uh, their testing was delayed to the point where they were no longer a candidate for potentially uh, life prolonging or life saving surgery. So, you know, we do the best we can, but there's um, there's no guarantee that we're going to be able to get everyone done in um,
1: in a timely fashion. Okay, last one, and then we'll let you get back to it. When we talk about you know COVID cases up, there's this many COVID cases in the ICU. ICUs are stressed, and we're pulling resources from other areas. We're talking about the healthcare system. As one living entity, right, and all aspects of it of a hospital are affected by this, right? I mean, there, there, there's no ward that's untouched due to a resource shift or whatever the case may be. This affects everything that happens within the building you work in. Exactly. Yep. You, it's it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I mean, everything comes at a cost. Um, doc, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. And thank you for the work you're doing. Keep it up. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. That's Dr. Sean Van Diepen, who is an Edmonton critical care. specialist.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com slash system.
3: At EverNorth Health
0: Services, we believe costs
3: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at
1: evernorth.com slash wonder. We're going to be dipping in out of the federal election campaign. There's some things going on there that we want to talk about. One of them, and I didn't realize this, um, the right to vote, of course, you know, that, that's a cornerstone of every democracy, right? And access to voting is a pretty big deal. Uh, Take a look at what's going on in the United States where voting rights are in peril in some places. It completely undermines the legitimacy of a well-functioning democracy. You have to be able to access your right to vote. Now, here in Canada, a long-standing tradition that gives access to young people is not going to happen in this federal election campaign. Campus voting polling stations. Not happening. Let's chat with uh, Cam Wong now and get some details. Uh, Cam is Communications Director at Future Majority, a nonpartisan, not not-for-profit that mobilizes young Canadians to vote. Cam, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So what's the deal here? We're just not going to have on-campus polling stations this time around? For sure. A couple of weeks
4: before the election, Elections Canada announced that they would not be offering on campus voting programs this year. And they cited COVID nineteen in short timelines given this is a snap election. But as an organization that mobilizes young Canadians to vote, we think that it's their responsibility to ensure that every single young Canadian can head to a polling station this
1: fall. What what's the reasoning? Why did they why did that change this time?
4: They cited COVID-19, they cited short timelines, but to be honest, we all saw this election coming and this change really reduces the access to voting for post-secondary students and it prevents young Canadians from voicing their concerns in their home riding.
1: Yeah, let's talk more about what, you know, what the, the negative impact of, of removing these polling stations is and, and the effect that it has on, on young people, not only having more difficulty in voting, but the engagement process with young people.
4: For sure. So the first time that I voted in a federal election was at one of these on-campus polling booths. So I know how big of an impact these programs can have on young Canadians. Lots of folks on university campuses are unable to access transit, whether it's a car or whether it's safe public transit, to be able to go to an off-campus polling station. And on top of that, these on-campus polling stations are satellite polls, which means that generally folks are able to voice their concerns in their home ridings and vote in the ridings that they choose to vote in. Um,
1: In the long term... Yeah, go ahead, keep going.
4: In the long term, these on-campus polling booths are gonna be a detriment to our democracy. We've seen decades of research coming out showing that when you engage folks in democracy young, you're able to create an entire generation of lifetime voters, and that's what these on-campus programs do.
1: Right, exactly. What's the voter turnout typically like at these polling stations? A lot of kids take advantage of these?
4: Absolutely. I went to Western University, I voted for the first time on it, these on-campus voting booths, and we had lines on election day going out the door. So young Canadians really take advantage of these on-campus polling booths as an opportunity to voice their opinions, make a change, and make sure that politicians hear us loud and clear when we say that we want action on the issues that we care most about.
1: Um, what, going forward, is this something that you're worried will become the norm in Canada, that we don't offer the campus voting anymore?
4: So we've spoken with Elections Canada alongside a few other uh, youth voting groups and they have committed to re-establishing these on-campus polling booths um, in the future. But headed into this election, there are lots of youth groups that are mobilizing young Canadians to vote to ensure that every single young Canadian is able to cast an educated ballot and is heading to the polls this election.
1: Okay. Um, one interesting thing is, as I was reading the piece that you put together, this is just the first step for you. You would actually like to see the voting age lowered and polling stations in high schools?
4: absolutely. We want to see the voting age lower to 16, because that ensures that our government is accountable to young people on issues that we overwhelmingly care about. Things like climate change, things like affordability. And realistically, I'll, I'll put it back to you, is there's not a huge difference between a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. 16-year-olds have jobs, they pay taxes, they drive cars, they are really educated members of our democracy. We've got tons of volunteers in the organization that are 16 that know so much about what's going
1: on in politics. Yeah, but then you can go ahead and say, well, there's really not that much of a difference between 16 and 14. You know, I mean, we, we, we've drawn a line at the age of majority in this country where, you know, if you want to join the military, you want to get married. I mean, the list goes on and on. Income tax is different. You can't go and see a doctor. You, know, you need guardian representation, things like that. Um, don't you have to draw that line somewhere?
4: For sure, you know what is headed into this election. What we're really thinking about is how do you engage democracy yeah. in the long term. So making sure that folks have on-campus polling booths in their high schools, they're in this academic environment where they're learning about civics, where they're learning about social sciences, where they're learning about civic engagement. And that provides them an opportunity to actually see those civic uh, engagement opportunities play out in their high schools and after that you'll see them vote in election after election well into their 60s and 70s
1: yeah there's other ways to engage youngsters rather than given i mean the right to vote isn't necessarily the only way to do this right i mean there's groups like yours that, that work on this constantly i mean there's other ways to do it instead of changing the voting age
4: And we've been engaging young Canadians, whether they're 16, whether they're 18, in civic engagement. We've got tons of volunteers that are uh, canvassing in person this election. They are peer-to-peer texting, they're vote tripling their friends, even if they're not of voting age. So we're seeing young Canadians get really involved in politics and get really engaged.
1: Interesting. Uh, Cam, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us.
4: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
1: You bet. That is Cam Wong, Communications Director at Future Majority. During each and every election campaign, something comes out that sticks. You know, whether the politician wants it to or not, typically they don't. And that's clearly the example in this case, I would think, anyway. A candidate says something that yeah, they maybe didn't completely think out, weren't completely clear about, whatever the case may be. Regardless, it becomes campaign fodder. And in this campaign, you've seen the ads that the opposition parties have been running. uh, Justin Trudeau saying, forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Really is quite a statement from someone who wants to be prime minister of a G7 country, but there it is. He said it. Uh, but as we've talked about before, monetary policy isn't really a headline in this campaign. Spending is, but that's really as far as we're going on you know, monetary policy, and that's alarming to a lot of people. So we're going to chat now with uh, Bill Robson, who is CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Bill, thanks for your time today. appreciate you joining us.
3: Uh, my pleasure. I, I hope we'll be able to
1: get something cheerful out of this. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get some clarity, if nothing else. Um, when we take a look at you know monetary policy and where it fits into this federal election campaign, you know, as we're halfway through, Statscan comes out with a couple of reports last week saying that you know what monetary should be on the minds of Canadi- monetary policy should be on the minds of Canadians right now, especially the leaders, because there's some things going on. What what, what did those reports tell us? Well, the one that's uh,
3: very very much of a headline is the Consumer Price Index. Uh, It's uh, up close to 4% year over year, which is a very high number. I mean, that's the if you go back to the bout of inflation back in the 1970s, that was the kind of inflation rate that caused people to want wage and price controls. Um, And it's uh, almost double the Bank of Canada's 2% target. Uh, The other one that really caught my eye was in the... uh, uh, StatsCan's GDP report for the second quarter, uh, that made a lot of headlines because there was a, 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 a downtick in real activity which came as a bit of a surprise uh, but there was a huge increase in prices uh, during that quarter yeah. as well, uh, all through the economy and so for me th- this is you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that the Bank of Canada is pretty serious about hitting its 2% target but there's no question they're missing on the upside and maybe it's time for us to be looking at some of the things
1: that are causing that to happen so, so when you take a look at that, you know, for the average listener out there and for me, to be honest, why do I care? I mean, what, what does it mean to me? You know, what, I, how does this hit me in the pocketbook?
3: Well, when the consumer price index is up nearly 4% year over year, people are noticing it when they go shopping. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing it on the supermarket shelves. Uh, people's wages are not keeping up with that. Uh, And as everybody knows, uh, the housing market is kind of on fire. If You're you're a young person trying to get into the market for the first time. The prices there are a bit crazy. Um, And there's something else, too, that I think is important. um, and, And economists tend not to talk about this so much, but I think it's just a common sense thing. We all use weights and measures in our daily lives. We check the temperature before we go outside. If you're measuring something, if you're cooking, if you're doing carpentry, whatever it is, we rely on all of these units of measurement that we use to stay the same over time and money is a little bit like that as well and one of the things that is very uh makes makes people very unhappy about inflation is that money stops being a reliable measure uh we're not really at that stage now but if inflation continues to run way above the bank of canada's target people start to get that feeling like things are getting a bit unhinged
1: what's happening why are we seeing this kind of inflation that we haven't seen in a long time and where it's getting into that area where you start to get a little concerned I think that the
3: easiest way to think about what happened at the beginning of the pandemic is that uh, there was a, a bit of a panic. Uh, we didn't know how serious things were going to be, and there was a major effort. Uh, we know that government spent a lot of money, uh, and also the Bank of Canada started to push a whole lot of money out into the financial system just to make sure that everybody who was trying to hoard cash, uh, that there was going to be enough. And that was the right thing to do, and it cushioned the uh, initial part of the pandemic quite well. Um, the problem is, at some point, you got to start withdrawing that uh, because the economy is recovering. People are starting to spend, and as and it's a it's a fine balance to try and withdraw it at at the at the right pace. But what we're now seeing is that there's an awful lot of money out there, and the economy just isn't producing all the goods and services that would uh, you know that, that that would mean that that was the right amount of money to keep hold prices stable. And so as a result, we're seeing uh, these increases in prices because we're pressing up against what the economy. Can in supply. And so that, that that's a very different kind of a situation. That's one where you start to say, hey, maybe things are overheating and the bank should be pulling back.
1: Now, I, I mentioned uh, the Prime Minister's quote in terms of, I don't think about monetary policy. The rest of that quote is, forgive me, I, I'm sort of focused on helping families and Canadians get through this pandemic. Is that a fair... Um, argument in terms of monetary policy seems to be entering some dangerous areas. But you know what, we're dealing with a once in a century pandemic here. We need to make sure people are all right. This will all sort itself out when we get this pandemic behind us. Is that a fair argument?
3: Well I you know I'll, I'll just say again that I think when when we were at the front end of this uh, it's pretty hard to fault uh, the the measures that uh, the government took and the Bank of Canada took so fine. Uh we got through that much better than I think a lot of us thought w- that we would. Uh but but coming out of it now I think that the well-being of families and monetary policy are pretty tightly connected with each other for sure. the reasons that we've just been discussing. I mean if prices are going up fast if people go to the supermarket and they're looking at orange juice or, or or whatever it is, and they're trying to figure out like is the price up because there, there's a you know we're we're short of orange juice right now, or is, is the price of everything up? Uh, that's when it starts to uh, become a real pocketbook issue for people. And as I said earlier, you begin to feel a little bit like hey, I, if I'm thinking about retiring, if I'm thinking about saving for something in the future, uh, I, I I have to be confident that money is going to hold its value. I can't uh, uh, t- run the risk that uh, in in 20 years time this dollar is going to be worth nothing so I think that the, the, it's, it's, a, it's not correct to separate those two things. It is very much of a well-being of families issue. And the thing that's really critical right now, there's a deadline coming up right after the election. Uh, the government of Canada, the Bank of Canada, agree on this inflation target. And I think that it's a good thing for the government to be thinking about renewing that target and, and keeping us on the path that's served us so well for so long, uh, rather than letting inflation run too hot and then maybe giving people a sense that they don't
1: care. Last one, uh, before I let you go. None of the parties are really talking about monetary policy, at least what I would recognize as monetary policy. They're all talking about spend, 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 spend. I mean, the Conservatives give a nod to paying off the deficit in 10 years kind of a thing without really a clear plan on how they're going to do it. I mean, they're all in on this, all of them.
3: Yeah, we're in a populist period of history where people seem to be very much in the here and now. You know, what's the, what do I want in yeah. the next few minutes? And uh, that's that's a problem for monetary policy because in the short run, easier monetary policy feels good. I mean, interest rates are lower. Right now, the Bank of Canada is buying government debt to try and keep long-term interest rates down. And so they're kind of abetting this uh, these deficits and this run-up of debt. Um, but if you do too much of that for too long, you get inflation, which nobody wants. And so uh, we do need that longer time horizon and uh, at the moment in this election campaign we're not hearing a lot about it Uh, what i'd like to see is a little bit of a commitment that once we're through this patch uh, we're going to be getting back to some of the you know uh, committing to a low inflation rate which uh, is something that we've benefited from for a long period of time and you
1: don't throw that away lightly yeah and i know a lot of listeners agree with you um thanks very much bill appreciate your time this morning my pleasure